I want to, as best I can today, draw out this tension that plays out in eschatology. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I live with tension in my life. I live with tension in my life. And here's what I mean. There's tension between who I am in Christ, forgiven, redeemed, an adopted son, a co-heir with Christ in all things, someone with a glorious and rich inheritance and future. And yet, there's tension between who I am in Christ and who I am as a recovering perfectionist with OCD tendencies who sometimes isn't always in touch with his emotions, right? Which is me? Both. (laughs) And that's intention. You live intention too in your life and in the community of faith. Any of you who follow Jesus have that tension, tension between who you are now and who you want to be. Tension between the way things are now and tension between the way things are supposed to be. Let me give you some examples of this. 20 years ago, I worked for a boss who took advantage of me. Uh, He took advantage of me because I had to work a ton of hours, paid an hourly rate. I had to work a ton of hours I wasn't paid for. And then I also had to do someone else's job that should have been fired and he didn't have the guts to fire this guy and so I was doing this other guy's job too in addition to mine in addition to working hours I wasn't paid for and I was angry and I became bitter over a period of a few months with this man this Christian man who was my boss and yet at that moment I was also a believer a follower of Jesus someone who had been forgiven much now I did eventually forgive him but do you see the tension in those few months um These days, I find it very, very hard to hang around what I call show Christians. Show Christians are people who, um, you know, they like to have all the special bumper stickers on the back of their car, you know, in case of rapture, this car is going to crash into yours. (laughs) You know, um, they, they're, (laughs) okay, it says something else. (laughs) All right, but the, the uber religious, they often sometimes homeschool. They'll quote C.S. Lewis all the time. And I'm like, who's Lewis? You know, actually, I know who Lewis is, okay? They, they vote Republican. There's all these things about them. But they, the show Christian part is that they're quick to point out their pedigree. Well, you know, my pastor is, and he has a doctorate. And I've been to these classes. And, oh, did you know the new Beth Moore study's coming out? And blah, 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 blah. And they're also quick to point out all your flaws. Oh, you're doing it wrong. You know, that's not what the Bible says about that. And they got their nose in there. So I admit there have been times where I'm so tempted to just walk away from those people when I run into them in the community. And the irony, of course, is that I've been accepted by God. I was accepted by God with all my flaws and foibles. And trust me, I have them. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll fill you in. They're very real. Tension. Um, uh, Fifteen years ago, Uh, I was afraid of failure. I was afraid that people wouldn't like me, and I was afraid, I was worried what people would say about me. And yet, I was a believer who had a new identity in Christ, someone who was a beloved son of their heavenly father. My identity with God was secure, and yet my identity with other people was tenuous. So do you, you see this tension? There's this tension between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. There's this tension between what God's doing in my life and then the culmination of that on the day of the resurrection. We live with tension. And so I want to suggest to you today, first of all, that that tension is normal. 
But your job and my job is to take, let's say if 10 is the maximum, our job is to allow God to work in us in such a way that we bring that number down, even if it's just to an 8, or even if it's to a 5, or maybe over a lifetime of following Jesus and allow him to make you holy and to carve out the harmful, dark, sinful things in your life and replace them with love and all of the things that we read about from Jesus and that we read about in the New Testament, maybe even do a three. But you're going to have this tension and, and we're all going to have this tension. Paul talked about it this way. He said in his many letters, he referred to this present evil age and the age to come. And in Paul's mind and in his thinking, God had already broken into this age. God's work, the Holy Spirit and the power of his spirit, God's kingdom was already here and now, and yet, not yet fully realized. For those of you that went to a Christian college, I'm going to mention a two-phrase thing, and you're going to go, oh, that was the New Testament class. Already, not yet. See, the kingdom of God is already here among us, in us, with us. The Holy Spirit is empowering us, and yet it's not yet fully realized. There's still sin. People still consciously choose to rebel, or because they're afraid, they don't trust God the way they should trust him, and they don't see that God's trustworthy. So there's this tension that plays out. The greater the tension, the more people go, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And we'll talk about that in a moment. This all has to do with eschatology. It all has to do with eschatology. If if your eschatology is over-realized, in other words, oh yeah, God's kingdom here, it's in power, it's everywhere, Jesus always gets his way, that's how things are. What that leads to is this mindset of, you know, God just is going to bless me and I'm going to have an awesome life and I'm going to be wealthy and I'm always going to be healed and it kind of, it culminates in America with name it, claim it. That's an over-realized eschatology. You can also have an under-realized eschatology. I have some friends, and they're in the Reformed tradition. It's basically this. Sin's very real. Not much you can do about it till the Lord returns. Oh, well. <laughs> this dark, present, evil age. There's no power of the Holy Spirit to do anything. It's just the way... Th- it's like I call it the Eeyore way of eschatology. <laughs> okay? Um, I'm not going to build my house. It's just going to fall down again. Okay? Both, both, are, both are erroneous. So you don't want to have an over-realized over, uh, eschatology, and you don't want to have an under-realized eschatology. We won't be perfect, but we will be different. It's another way to say it. Already, not yet. If you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at this prayer that Paul prays, and it, it has some of this already not yet, present age, age to come in it, this prayer that he prays for these early followers of Jesus. So in Paul's way of thinking, the coming of Jesus Christ means that we're already in the last days. So in, in Paul's letters, you pick this up as you're reading. We're all re- the end has already come. It's here, man. The fact that Jesus showed up, the Son of God, the Messiah has arrived, boom. We're, you know, we're in these last final moments of human history. Um, and so that's his thinking. Um, but he talks about the fact that there's this tension between the inbreaking of God in history and when it will culminate, when God comes back. 
as rightful king and judge. And so this is what he writes to these believers in Ephesus. Verse 15 of chapter 1. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. That first little part there, ever since I first heard, literally in the Greek, it's for this reason. So he's referring back to the previous verses, verse 13, verses uh, 3 through 14. And, and from Paul's vantage point, your faith in God, your love for one another, those are indicators that the kingdom of God is at work in you, that the Holy Spirit and the power of God's Spirit is breaking in and establishing this new humanity that, that Jesus came to make possible. And so for Paul, those are indicators that it's at work. And he's grateful, and he talks about that in the previous verses. Um, uh, in the previous verses, he talks about God's secret plan that's now revealed, it's now breaking into the world. All right? If you're familiar with Paul's writing, you know that he has this favorite triad, faith, hope, and love, which are, kind of, again, there are indicators that God's broken into things. And so you see the first two of them in this prayer, before he breaks into his prayer, your strong faith, and your love for God's people. All right, so let's keep going, verses, uh, say, 18 and following. I pray, and this is what he's uh, praying, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. So he's praying that their eyes are opened, that they're able to see things as they are and that their hearts are flooded with light so that they can understand what? So that they can understand what? Confident. Oh, look, there's the third member of that triad. Confident hope. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to return and make all things new. When he will return and bring justice. When his revolution of love will be fully realized when there will be no more sin or darkness or death, they will be vanquished. This is what Paul's writing about in this letter. There's a principle here. You cannot, become, you cannot be a mature Christian unless you are future-oriented, the age-to-come-oriented, eternity-oriented. And he talks about it. He wants them to know, to grasp, to understand their rich and glorious inheritance, which they have a kind of a down payment or a little bit of, but are not going to fully get until that day. Let's continue on verses 19 uh, to the end of the chapter. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. He wants them to know this great power. The same great power that raised Jesus from the dead was promised by Jesus. Those of you who are teenagers and middle and high school students might recognize this. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. And I told you before, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. You will receive what? 
power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this power that raised Jesus from the dead is now given to this new humanity, this community of faith, what we call the church. And we see them go out from Jerusalem, and they start infecting the Roman Empire. Because the way that they love is different. The way that they live is different. There's still tension. They're not a perfect 10. We know from Paul's letters there was jealousy. There were people that did the uber-Christian, super-Christian thing. Oh, my teacher's Apollos. You know, we know this from the, the, the letters of the New Testament. But yet, they were different enough. The tension level was down enough that the rest of the world took notice. There's something different. There's something going on with this community, this new humanity. All right, let's go to the end of the, ver- end of the chapter, verses 21 and following. Now he, and he's referring to Jesus here, now Jesus is far above any other ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in, and here's the phrase, this world, but the world to come. Everyone in the first century knew and believed something. Who is Lord? Oh, Caesar is Lord. Who is king? Oh, Caesar is king. What Caesar wants, Caesar gets. And into that context, these followers of Jesus move out. And they're insisting, oh no, you just think Caesar's king. You know who's really king? Jesus. Guess what? We're going to kill you. Go right ahead. Jesus' kingdom is going to advance. Jesus' kingdom cannot be stopped. Jesus' kingdom is a revolution of love that will turn Caesar's house upside down. And within 400 years, Christianity had done just that. Today, there is no Caesar. But today, right, there's Christians all over the world. And you could argue there are Caesars, and we can get into that another time. All right? Verses uh, 22 to the end. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills things everywhere with himself. This is important for Paul, this idea that God's inbreaking into human history has gotten a bit of a foothold and it's working its way out in the life of anyone who says yes and responds in faith to Jesus and makes Jesus their savior and their king. All of a sudden, Paul, Paul's language, they're a new creation, they're born again. I mean, the, the, the language of the New Testament is consistent on this. And so this inbreaking of God is working its way out. And again, your mission, my mission, when it comes to this part of eschatology is to take that tension between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be and adjust it down a little bit. Let me talk about how this plays out in your life and in my life, all right? And I want to suggest four, just four ways. There are probably a hundred. But today I want to give you four different ways that you could lower the tension level in your own life, and in the spheres of influence that you have. One way is just to love well. I had, uh, uh, Nate was there, but when Jenny and I were younger, uh, we uh, had a Sunday school class uh, full of second, third, fourth, fifth grade kids. And one of the kids, Chris Jr., had a dad and a mom, Chris Sr. and Kathy. They were married, and they had Kathy Jr. It wasn't their real names, right? Family of four, they were the perfect family. Chris was an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist. He had a clinic here in Nicholasville. Um, 
and back in these days, we all dressed up for church, not like today, which showed the good Lord respect, but we also, we would all get our suits and ties on and dash off to church, and they were the perfect family every, any given Sunday. They rolled in in this giant stretch black Mercedes, because he was an eye doctor, he did well, and, and they were always dressed well, they, you know, it, it, but there was a problem at home. And Jenny and I could see it in the classroom because Chris Jr. was angry. I mean, he would sometimes hit the wall. He was clearly mad at somebody. He was mad at Dad because Dad, despite all the perfection that he showed at church on Sundays, at home he was a harsh man. He was mean to his son and his daughter. And eventually Chris cheated on Kathy, and they ended up getting divorced. So... So Kathy Jr. spent a long time away from God and church. Why? Because the tension level at home was beyond a 10. Chris Jr. is still... Now, Kathy Jr. has found her way back to God, but Chris Jr. is still... I don't think I want to have anything to do with God, blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, duh. It's because Dad shoved God down your throat, but he did not love well. And you look at that, and you look at that tension, and you go, no, I won't have anything to do with it. Duh. So one thing you could do in your relationships is love well. Love well. Part of that is admitting fault and wrongdoing and extending forgiveness. In Paul's letters, he talks about forgive each other, bear with one another. Those are a couple of themes that come up consistently in his letters. So loving well reduces that tension level. Another way that you can reduce the tension level is to actually work for justice. Um, And there are a lot of different ways you could do that. I got my shorts all bent out of shape a few months ago uh, for prisoners in Kentucky whose voting rights are taken away for life. Commit one crime, one and you're done. Boom. I happen to believe that God can change people. And I happen to believe that it's probably better to restore voting rights once they've served their time. You may have a different opinion, and that's fine. But it was an issue of justice. And when I started working with my legislators on it and pushing and pushing, and because I'm a pastor and I'm an evangelical, they, you know, I got the, why, why do you care about these prisoners? You've obeyed the laws. You've done all the right things. They've, they made a decision, and they got themselves where they are. I'm like, justice! That's what, you know. And so you may find in your kid's school, right? Come on, moms. There have been times, right? You're ready to go. The, the, the missile silo doors do this. Beep, beep, beep. I'm going to go into that principle. I'm going to go in, you know, right? <laughs> beep, beep. Justice. When you and I work for justice, again, it lowers the tension level. Evangelical Christians have a bad rap in America right now, but one thing that the media has to take note of is, man, those evangelicals sure care about slave trading. They sure care about sex slaves all throughout the world. They're sure working hard to do things to, to affirm the value of the personhood of those people. They're kooky <laughs> the way they follow Jesus, but got to give them props for the whole justice thing there. So again, it lowers the tension level. Beauty is the third way. For those of you that are creative, art, when you affirm the world the way it's supposed to be, when you affirm love and truth, and people go, yes, that's a good thing. There are plenty of artists, by the way, who describe the broken world the way it is. They're a dime a dozen. Turn on the TV, it's all over the place. Yep, world's broken, got it, ding. There's a writer who has written a f- few different television shows where he's written in a husband and a wife who actually love each other. In most TV shows, if you notice, usually the husband's a dope. 
and, and doesn't really, isn't really attentive to his wife, and the wife is kind of a smarty pants, and you know, they play that off during the whole TV show. He's written a couple where they actually, they actually love each other still, and he's gotten compliments from people in the Hollywood community. And affirm, you know, it would be great if that's, if that's how things could be. Oh, well, you know, maybe, right? I've been to a ton of weddings, trust me. When there's an older couple there and it's obvious that they still love each other, everybody else is like, dang, I want that. <laughs> that's what I want. Sign me up. They don't even have to be Presbyterian to want it. Okay, another way, another way, another way is evangelism. Evangelism. So you have a story, and you're now part of God's story. See, God has a plan for humanity, and a big part of that plan is what he's done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for many of you in this room, you've encountered Jesus. There was pre-Jesus you, and now there's post-Jesus you. Are you a 10? Are you where you want to be? No. But God's grace is at work at your life, and you have a story that you can share and when you share that story, it, it brings people in. Remember in, in that verse I just read for Acts, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. You're witnessing to what God has done. All right? So those are just four ways. So as we wrap up this series of eschatology, I want you to realize something very important about Jesus' kingdom. Yes, it's right here. It's alive and well now today. But yet... It's not fully realized and won't be until he comes back as judge and king where his kingdom will know no end. Closest way I can think to describe this to you is uh, an analogy that I'm stealing from Dr. Don Carson. Dr. Don's a great little Greek guy at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And, and so I want to leave you with this. In June of 1944, there was a war going on that pulled in virtually everybody all over the world. Europe was a disaster. The Germans had taken over almost everything. The Pacific Rim was a disaster. The Japanese were killing everybody. And everybody, Northern Africa, I mean, there wasn't a part of the world that was untouched by World War II. And in June of 1944, the Allies did something that changed the course of the war. They launched D-Day, all the while leading up to D-Day, they had uh, had a decoy mission with General George Patton, the three-star general. They made a movie about him, silver-handled pistols. And so the, the allies made the Germans think that Patton was going to lead the real invasion. And so Patton was always going to meetings with high-level people all over London and here and there. And it was to divert Nazi attention away from the real plans. And they succeeded because on D-Day... Germans weren't prepared. They had sent all their troops to this other area that, that was part of what Patton, the patent decoy was all about. And so on D-Day, all of these Allied forces stormed the beaches. Historians all over the world say one thing consistently about that moment. On that day, Germany could do nothing but lose. That was the turn of the tide for the war. The war was, in effect, over for Germany. It was only now, the question now wasn't a question of who would win. The question was simply when. When would the Germans cry uncle? How many more allied lives and advances would it take to affect the victory that had been won on D-Day? In a similar way, 
2,000 years ago, God visited the planet. He was born in a manger. He grew up and we knew him and know him as Jesus of Nazareth. He taught a new way of living. He brought with him the kingdom of God. And he died for our sins, and yet death could not keep him dead. He rose again. And so on that day, in that moment, in that life, we as Christians have had our D-Day. Satan and those who rebel and oppose God can only lose at this point. The victory, who's going to win? That's secure. But it's not yet fully realized until he comes back. And so that's why Christians in all places, especially in places where they're still persecuted, say, even so, come Lord Jesus. I hope that you will allow God to work in your life to take that tension level of a 10 and bring it down. Because when you do, you give people a glimpse of God's kingdom and what God can do by taking broken people and making them whole. Can I pray for you? God, I ask that you would help Generations Community Church to be a kingdom-impacting church here in Jessamine County. We already partner with the food pantry. We already do things to serve our schools, but I ask that you would continue to use us to turn heads and turn hearts and cause people to go, well, you guys may be kooky, but I'll give you props for the way that you love. I'll give you props for the way that you diligently work for justice. So God, I pray that you will work in our lives. Help us to love well. Help us to seek justice. Help us to affirm beauty and help us to share our story so that others may taste and see your goodness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.